I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey, everybody. Before we dive into the topic today, which is building internet scale or web scale applications, I wanted to say first that the response I got from having my recent guest, Dustin Warner, on was absolutely amazing. If you haven't listened to that episode, I obviously highly recommend it. I've been getting a lot of fun new interactions from people who follow this podcast, but also now people who follow Dustin. So if you're new to hearing my voice, welcome. And if you are a regular here with me already, go check Dustin out online if you haven't. He's pretty cool. I definitely plan on doing more guest episodes and honing my skills as an interviewer. I rewatched the episode and listened to it, and I know I can do better. So in the spirit of continual improvement, I'm going to practice by having more guests on. Now I just have to work through scheduling this next one. I'm glad to finally have broken down that barrier and also start uploading YouTube videos again. So if you want to watch me and Dustin talk, not just listen, you can check that out on grantdryden.com YouTube. Now for today's topic, building internet scale or web scale applications. This episode will be of particular value to those of you who are interviewing right now. Given the mass layoffs that continue to happen, some of you will be interviewing and going through what are called system design interviews. Thankfully, the information in this episode will overlap a lot with how to prep for one of those interviews. So I'm actually going to prefix the topic of scaling with some aspects of system design interviews. Most often, those interviews are based on cloud services, so you should go in understanding at least the basics of one major cloud provider. If you know the basics, then you can ask the right questions. The depth of knowledge required to do well will be more substantial for somebody purely technical in an engineering or in architecture role, and the technical requirements will be slightly lower for managers. After all, technical design isn't always something that managers primarily focus on. It depends on the size of the company and the team that they're managing. The primary job for a technical or engineering manager at a gigantic enterprise company gets a little blurry. Sometimes it's more technical, sometimes it's more people or product focused. Regardless of company, managers do have to speak on tech and understand how it works because they're responsible for their software portfolio and helping their teams efficiently work. But the actual design and work is collaborative with architects and engineering leads to solve a complicated business problem. And let me tell you, getting the business problem sorted out before work can even start can take a ton of effort in big companies. So if you want to pursue engineering management, consider the scale of the company you're going to work at because that's going to determine what your day-to-day job looks like. If you want to write code and be heavily involved in the design of a product or the technical decisions, in addition to your management responsibilities, you should probably go to a smaller company. But if you want to focus more on the business problems and managing people and being a leader, a bigger company will set you up to do those things as a manager, uh, just by the nature of the fact that you won't have as much time in your day to actually go hands-on and write code. It's not that you can't. A lot of this is largely a self-prioritization exercise. What matters to you and what is the most value you can bring to the company in your role, as well as the expectation of your leader. But Overall, that would probably be the split. Smaller companies, more hands-on. Bigger companies, less hands-on as a manager. Now, I want to talk about management just a little bit longer because that is the career path that I chose for myself uh, as I moved up through the engineering career path. My personal opinion is that managers should honestly remain technical. But if they're not at least 20% of the time contributing code, then they probably shouldn't be pushing any code into production. 
It's a risk to the company if their skills are not sharp enough to build secure code. And yes, this is true even with security scanning solutions and CICD automation in place. I'd probably have to do another episode on this topic in particular, but it mainly amounts to the fact that there just aren't many people who could review and block their own manager's code if there was actually a problem with it. It's more of a power dynamic slash people relationship concern that I have here, and just structuring a peer review properly is a thing that would need to happen. So the odds of getting all of this just right and maintaining it across teams as a company grows is pretty low. So I'm not looking at this problem uh, for myself and my ability to contribute to a team's code base. I could probably figure that out for me, but I don't believe that there is a, an effective repeatable pattern of that style of working that you could implement at like JP Morgan or one of these other large companies. I think it really is up to the personality of the manager and the culture that they can foster of openness on their own teams. And some people are better than that than others. So let me tell you a story about that now. So I talk sometimes about this story where a CTO was writing code for their company and he was like really proud of himself for being a bit, uh, both a contributor and the CTO until he introduced insecure code into production, which led to a security breach at his company. So I'll link to the story in the episode notes, but this happened back in March of 2021. The company was Gab and the CTO was Fosco Murado, a former Facebook software engineer. Embarrassingly, he wrote code that was vulnerable to a SQL injection attack, one of the most well-known and entry-level types of vulnerability that can be prevented simply by sanitizing your inputs to a database. Even worse, his code commit history showed that he actually removed the input sanitization code that would have protected against this type of attack. So why did this happen? I don't know. I'm sure that Fosco knew what he was doing, having been a former software engineer at the likes of Facebook or maybe his skills degraded over time and he didn't realize just how bad or rusty he had gotten at programming, being a CTO and all, and maybe his time was spent elsewhere. But I think it's clear that they were not using uh, static code analysis tools, or at least not reading the reports, because those would have caught this situation. And also if they were doing peer reviews, then they were not doing them well, at least not on their CTO's code. If someone had spotted this, then they'd be put in the awkward situation of having to inform their CTO that he had made a rookie mistake. And who knows how that would have gone. I hope you see the problem here, at least in a general sense. Maybe Fosco is open to feedback. I don't know. He could have built an amazing culture of openness at Gab, or maybe not. But in a general sense, the power dynamic there is just far too imbalanced. That type of a model cannot scale to a hundred different teams or a thousand different teams in a giant bank, for example, my example of JP Morgan. So that's why I hold my opinion on managers and their production of code. So let's get back to the topic we just uh, forked off of there, technical depth required for a system design interview. So to give an example of what one of these interviews looks like for an engineer or an architect, they may be asked to produce a system design for some random scenario and then to discuss the infrastructure requirements for supporting it as that system scales based on business need. For like X amount of traffic, how many servers are needed? Does it need to be highly available or have disaster recovery built in or not? What are the specific tools in AWS that you would use to help make all of those things come to fruition in your system? Now, managers, on the other hand, could be given the exact same system to design, but probably not design it from scratch. They may be given a predefined couple of boxes and arrows and a diagram, and then asked, is there something missing? Should they add to it, 
Or should they discuss the conversation about building some of the boxes versus buying options as a SaaS product instead of building it in-house? There's typically a cost associated with building something in labor and time on the team compared to buying something outright, which should just be spending money. So less technical trade-offs and more how to manage the system build out relative to the resources that the business would provide in both staffing and budget. So I'm not going to go deeper into the technical details of how to go through one of these interviews. The content in this episode will help you, but if you're interested specifically in these types of interviews as an engineer or an architect, well, what the heck, even as a manager, there's a thing online called Grokking Modern System Design Interview for Engineers and Managers. I'll link to it in the episode description. Grokking is a slang term from 1961, and all it means is to understand thoroughly and intuitively. It's basically a very old tech meme. So educative.io has this course available. So hit that up, check it out if you are interested in learning more about how to go through these interviews. All right, now I promise I'm actually going to discuss the topic for this episode now. So let's start at the beginning. What the heck is a web scale or internet scale application? You could probably read between the lines. It's one that can handle traffic from all across the world. Systems of this nature need to be three things, scalable, reliable, and maintainable. Commit those things to memory. Around those three pillars, we have a ton of specialties and domains of expertise like security, cloud computing, SRE or site reliability engineering, DevOps, DevSecOps, and even DBRE or database reliability engineering, just to name a few. There are so many acronyms and specialties required in building applications at scale these days, I think a thousand foot view would be good to provide some perspective. This type of software engineering is not something everybody gets exposed to, but it's rapidly becoming more and more of a thing as we turn into a global society and systems need to scale to support anybody accessing them from anywhere in the world. I think if I were starting out in IT or engineering today, just the sheer amount of information that I would need to know how to build something good is intimidating. And I think that's the key, building something good. Anybody can really build anything these days with the number of tools that are out there. You don't have to understand all these nuances, and you may prefer to specialize in one thing as you learn more about cloud computing. Maybe you just really love security, or you love SRE, or you love DevOps. There's a place for you. But if you're serious about building an app that can handle immense traffic and gobs of data that's efficient and reliable and not a resource hog because those are very expensive to run in the cloud, then all of the nuance and details matter. You need to understand the big picture of how all things relate to one another. And understanding all of that will set you up to be an architect or an engineering lead or a manager. So think about it this way. We'll use an example. I could write a Python script right now and hit the chat GPT API and start conversing with it. But if I want to share that tool or turn my interface into a business somehow, then my script isn't enough anymore. I could have produced it in one day, but it's a piece of garbage, really. It was good for me to run on my PC, but that's definitely not useful for the average customer. Just using the command line is too much for most people. So I'd at least want to build a UI, and I'd probably be wanting to make my tool available to anyone in the world. So I need to host it somewhere and maintain it, I'd want to protect my business from things like downtime or natural disasters. My whole company would be sunk if I was running it on a server under my desk and that server died or I kicked it or an earthquake took out the data center that it was running in if it were in a data center. So you should be able to see how this logically scales from something you've built on your PC that works for you to a tool that someone else can easily use in exchange for money from anywhere in the world. 
And this is the journey of an internet scale application. And I personally think this is funny. So I've been in tech for so long now that I've kind of gotten used to people asking, Grant, why does it take so long to build something simple? And it's especially irritating to me when I'm working on building a scalable solution and an engineer on another team gets impatient and writes a quick and dirty version of the same product to just get what they need right now. Other people in the company will always ooh and ah over that sort of thing. But within a week or two, they all learn that they just can't scale it or modify it or that the tool sucks because it's not available half the time. Those are lessons you learn by using a crappy product over time and trying to scale it. And eventually these people come right back to me with the work that's already in flight, having learned their lesson that you don't get good software instantly. It takes time and a wealth of knowledge to build good products. The devil's in the details, so to say. If you want your system to be available when someone accesses it, there's a whole specialty in tech around making that happen. You don't get it for free when you buy your server. And it's all of those extra considerations as one grows their business that drive context around reliability, scalability, and maintainability. Where you draw the line is actually up to you. Some systems that I've managed needed three nines of availability or to be available 99.9% .9 of the time. And that equates to only eight hours and 41 minutes of downtime per year. And that can be quite hard to achieve without some expensive redundant systems to ensure that everything stays online. Other systems don't need quite so much availability. So how you architect your system for scale is really up to the risk that unavailability and downtime pose to your business. High availability costs money and it's not always necessary to have 99% uptime. Let's say you're building an internal system. Does it need to run on the weekends or during the evenings? I mean, maybe not. Maybe those are great maintenance windows where you can take some downtime. But if you do have a global company where you need to keep things running in the evenings and on weekends and during the day, then it might be good to purchase redundant systems to make it so that you can take one system down for maintenance while keeping the other one up. And then your customers always have constant availability even for internal applications. But again, you gotta buy two separate or more separate systems in order to maintain that availability level of service. If you didn't follow everything I just said, that's okay. We're gonna talk more about that here in just a second. The point I'm trying to make is it costs money and effort and time to put these things in place. So as for those three pillars that I had mentioned earlier, I'm going to talk first about scalability. So scalability is all about the growth of your product. As you gain more users, you're gonna gain more traffic to your application. And this is gonna to correlate to higher network bandwidth needs, increased server processing power and memory needs, and ever larger databases that will need to be searched through. To illustrate server scalability, also called compute, let's try to use an example here. In AWS, using the Elastic Compute Cloud, or EC2 product, you might prototype something with a T2 micro instance. Those effectively have one core, one gig of memory, and low to mid network performance. And that might be good enough for a prototype or even a product with a small number of customers for you. But eventually, you're going to need more resources. At this point, you could choose to scale either horizontally or vertically. Horizontal scaling is like copy-pasting your hardware multiple times and running your application on all of them at the same time. You do this by getting a second or a third T2 micro instance and running your application on those and then spreading your network traffic across them or balancing your traffic. Vertical scaling is just beefing up your hardware. So you could scale vertically by going from a T2 micro to a T2 small or medium instance, or you could do both, 
right? You could scale diagonally and do horizontal scaling and vertical scaling at the same time. So these are more architectural decisions and there are repercussions for scaling in both directions. One of the reasons why you'd use a product like AWS is exactly for scalability, to make it easy. It's not just a place to host your application, although you could use it that way, you should be building with scale and growth in mind at the same time. Horizontal scaling introduces the need for something called load balancing, which I mentioned a second ago. This is where you share your network traffic across your servers and balance the traffic load. If you've got three servers, then you might, may want to choose to balance your load a third, a third, and a third across those three instances so that one of them isn't over um, more load than the other. And this does make it more complicated to manage your network. It's also generally more expensive because you need multiple sets of hardware. And that cost is kind of hidden when you use a cloud provider like AWS, but if you own your own hardware, then you feel that impact more. On the bright side, the increased complexity does make it more resilient and fault tolerant. So you don't have a single point of failure anymore and you can decrease the impact of downtime because you can take down one instance for maintenance while keeping the others up. It also lets you do cool things like sending a little bit of traffic to a new version of your application while the other two handle most of the load so you can see how it responds. So there are benefits to horizontal scaling too. Vertical scaling, on the other hand, may be a little cheaper to do, but it's only good to an extent because you can only upgrade a system so much. You can't put an infinite number of processors or memory into a single system. You'll have to have a single point of failure with only one system, and so you're gonna be less fault tolerant, and if your hardware dies, then the whole system goes down at the same time. So in reality, as I mentioned before, you're probably gonna end up with a mix of both vertical and horizontal scaling from time to time, and cost will likely drive which direction you go. Now the context here is all gonna be within a single region of your cloud. A region is just like a geographic region, like West Coast USA or East Coast. It's where your hardware lives and people close to that location will be able to access your system faster than people far away. So when we're thinking about web scale architecture, you're gonna to wanna to consider where in the world your traffic is coming from, and you're gonna to wanna to create regional access points or VPCs, virtual private clouds, to serve those customers. This makes it physically faster for people to access your application. For example, Someone in Singapore could have a bad experience if they need to wait around for a round trip between their location and your server in North America. Instead, you could have a closer region, say in India, to serve that part of the world. It's pretty cool. It's like zooming out from a picture. At the lowest level, you have your EC2 instance that runs your code. You can scale that inside your VPC and balance the load in the region, and then you can essentially copy and paste your VPC to serve multiple regions across the world and manage traffic globally to redirect traffic to the most appropriate region for that request. Now it's not super complicated, but you can easily be overwhelmed by the terminology and words that get thrown around because they're not things we really say in everyday language. And the words can change depending on which cloud provider you use. They may be called VPCs in AWS, and I think they're also called that in GCP, but on Azure, they're called Azure Virtual Networks or VNets. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but conceptually, those are the equivalents between those different cloud providers. This is why my general advice for somebody trying to get into cloud computing is just, like, pick one. Pick a cloud provider and start there. <laughs> start learning its offering, how to use the system, how it all works. And once you've learned a reasonable amount for one cloud provider, then just move on to another one. Are some better than others? Yeah, in different areas. And you may want to do some research on um, what the cloud provider offers that's relevant to you before you go all in on one. 
but there's no rhyme or reason to picking one other than that when you're first starting out. Now, I hope you were able to follow a lot of what I just said. It's a lot easier when you can see boxes nested inside other boxes in a diagram, but I think that was generally understandable how to explain uh, cloud computing. So the next thing here, though, is if all of that was just too much for you, you don't want to manage infrastructure that went over your head or it's not really something that you're excited about, there is also a thing called a serverless cloud model. And I'll again use AWS here in these examples. AWS has two product offerings called Fargate and Lambda. So if all of that infrastructure management and setup was too much for you, then this is where serverless comes in. You build your app in a container, like a Docker container, and then you just drop it into Fargate and you, you define how much compute and memory resources you want applied to your container. And then your app's available and you only pay when it runs and everything else below the container is handled for you automatically. Lambda is an event-driven variation on Fargate. Say, if a user clicks a button on your website, then it could send a REST API call, which would trigger Lambda to execute your code. And that's event-driven serverless compute. It's convenient, right? But you do pay a premium for that convenience. It can be upwards of four times more expensive to run serverless than configuring and managing your own cloud infrastructure, but maybe that's worth it to you. You don't have to pay somebody to manage that infrastructure. So you, you can again pay the money or do the work, it's up to you. So that's what compute scalability essentially looks like, but we could consider database and data access now. Your compute power may be scalable, balanced, and divided into global regions, but we also have to consider where your data is located. It's not a good practice to bundle your database onto the same instance as your compute. We generally separate those two things as a security best practice. That way, if someone breaches your application, they can't steal all your data at the same time. They'd have to also locate and breach your database. So if you're using a database, which you probably are, you'll want to consider its load capacity and distance to your customers as well. Databases can also scale horizontally and vertically, just like compute, but the strategies around this are slightly different. So this is our segue into CAP theorem. CAP is an acronym standing for Consistency, Availability, and Partition Tolerance. It basically says that as you scale a system, you'll probably have to partition your network somehow. And when you do this, you can either get consistency in your data or availability, but not both. But first, why would you partition your network? One driver for partitioning is latency. So sticking with our example, people in the US would access a US-based database, but people in Singapore could access something a little closer to them, which would cut down on latency. Latency is how long it takes a request to get to your server, or in this case, database. Another driver for partitioning is load. Databases go through a lot of read and write cycles. Sometimes I've seen people create one database just for reading from and one just for writing to. Usually, there are a lot more reads than writes to a database, so this model could let you scale your database at a more functional level based on how it's intended to be used. So once you've partitioned, you can either get consistency in your data or availability. Consistent data means that when you make a change to the database and then read, you get the same answer. So let's stick with our example again. If someone changes the database in the US, it has to sync with Singapore, so someone reading from that database gets the same answer. I'm not saying this is a good model, but it illustrates the point. You want to keep the data in sync or consistent between regions. When a person reads from your system, they should get the most up-to-date information. Think of it like this. 
When our user logs into their banking institution, they don't want to see an error that no data is returned or that the value is higher or lower than what it actually is. Consistency is really important in that case. Availability, on the other hand, means that the data is fast to obtain but may not be in sync across regions. So if they query the database in the US versus Singapore, they may get different results, but they'll get them quickly. And that is a business trade-off. An example of having a highly available database can be seen in e-commerce businesses. So online stores want to make their store and the functions of the shopping cart available 24-7 so shoppers can make purchases exactly when they need to. So what exactly do your users need? It's important to be consistent to them or fast. And it's a judgment call of yours at the end of the day as the system designer. Now, I do think maybe I misspoke earlier when I said cap theorem. We assume the partition is going to be in place as you scale. You don't have to assume the partition. The point is, it's, it's like the iron triangle in project management. You can get CA or AP or CP, but you can't get all three, right? It can be consistent and available, but not partitioned, or consistent and partitioned, or available and partitioned. So pick two, and that is your paradigm for your database. It's just that as we scale, we kind of assume that a partition is inevitable. And so we just go with cap theorem under that assumption. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Grant, I've used Google Cloud Spanner, which gives us consistency and availability with partitions in an unlimited scale. And to that, I'd say, well, of course, there are tools out there that would mitigate cap theorem. Now, even Google Cloud Spanner doesn't claim to be fully CA and P. Right? It does actually pick C or A depending on the circumstances under the hood. So it's not fully reliable in that regard, but also it, it's going to cost you money. So this is just another instance where you can choose. Are you going to pay for the additional cost necessary to, to have some smoke and mirrors in front of Cap Theorem? Or are you going to design your system to appropriately pick C or A as you scale your database? And again, that call is up to you and how much money you have available. Eventually, as your database gets big enough, uh, or if your data is highly complex, then we start to get into the realm of what we call big data. Social media websites suffer from this, for example. Big data primarily refers to data sets that are too large or complex to be dealt with by traditional methods. I'm not actually going to dive into this topic other than to mention it and just say it's a thing. So I may cover it in the future, but this episode is already a little bit longer than I had anticipated and big data is a topic all in and of itself. So I'm going to speed through these next items just to make sure they get mentioned, but I hope this episode has at least shown how complicated building good apps at scale can be. If you take something away from this episode, I hope it's just some perspective on the matter. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed so much that you don't think you can start a cloud project. It's actually very easy to do that, but I also don't want you to be so underwhelmed that you get cocky and think that whatever you build is gonna be bulletproof enough to put social security or personal information or health information into. I'd enter into this domain with some humility at the least. So just accept that whatever you build on your own is gonna suck in at least one way or another. That's why we have teams of people with specialties and subdomains of cloud computing to make sure that this thing all works together well when you start talking about an internet scale or a web scale application. In fact, I probably got something at least a little wrong while I was putting this episode together. So if you want to go to war with me about anything I've said so far, then you're welcome to. Please let me know. I'd be happy to correct the record or add some nuance wherever it's needed. 
I do not claim to be a cloud computing expert, but I know enough to be able to give a 10,000 foot view like I've done just here in this episode. So let's recap, but also flesh out what it takes to build a system at the scale, because I tend to get a little distracted if you haven't noticed and go down rabbit holes as I explain things. So first off, we've got availability and reliability. An application should be highly available and reliable to ensure that users can access it 24 seven without any downtime. Engineers should design the application to have a high availability architecture with redundancy and failover mechanisms. And the amount of those things you build depends on how much money you have to throw out the problem and how important they are. Next is security. An application at internet scale should be built with security in mind. The application should have proper authentication and authorization mechanisms, data encryption and protection against attacks such as DDoS or distributed denial of service attacks. Next is performance. The performance of the application should be optimized to ensure fast response times and low latency. This can be achieved by using techniques such as content delivery networks or CDNs, caching and optimizing database queries. Next is monitoring and logging. Engineers should set up a monitoring and logging system to track the performance and usage of the application. This will help in identifying and resolving any issues quickly, especially if you're operating it as a DevOps team, which is what I uh, recommend if you've listened to any other episodes of mine. <laughs> and uh, we've got cost next, which is building an application at internet scale. It can be expensive, and engineers need to consider the cost of the infrastructure, resources, and maintenance. They should ensure that the application is designed to be cost-effective and scalable. A term you're going to hear under cost is called TCO, or Total Cost of Ownership takes all of the, that, uh, those considerations and rolls it into one lump to say, is this worth it, right? What's the total cost of ownership of this application in the cloud? So then you can judge based on um, the cost to own that application, whether or not it's worth uh, continuing to invest in or to keep around based on the business need. And lastly, we have user experience. The user experience of the application should be intuitive, responsive, and easy to use. The application should be designed to handle large volumes of users, and the user interface should be optimized for mobile devices. All of these things are true for a modern cloud-based application. If you're trying to build one that is a web scale or internet scale app, it takes all of those considerations and probably a little bit more as you dig into each of those and discover the subspecialties within them like availability and reliability. Overall, building an application at internet scale requires a broad range of skills and knowledge from the engineers involved from architecture and infrastructure design to user experience and security. Lots of stuff here. There's something for everyone to sink their teeth into, whether you're like me and you enjoy the whole experience of cloud computing, or if you really, really like one of the sub-disciplines associated with it. In fact, I think I mentioned SRE and DBRE earlier. SRE, Site Reliability Engineering, is a specialty of cloud computing. And DBRE is a specialty of SRE, or Database Reliability Engineering. So to use an analogy, if an SRE makes your car run well, then DBREs make sure your car engine runs well. It's pretty cool how cloud computing is evolving because just a few years ago, I had never even heard of DBREs. So I think that's probably a good place to stop for this episode. Honestly, I think I just tried to cram an entire college education into one episode. And the goal here wasn't to explain everything to you so much as to give some perspective on everything it takes to build an internet scale application. It's a lot of stuff. 
My next episode is probably going to be an interview. I actually do have two more lined up. So turn on notifications for new episodes of Getting Into It with Grant. Follow me on TikTok and YouTube. You can find links to those on my website, grantdryden.com. And thank you for listening. I'll see you again soon. Thank you.